You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Good morning to you all. Christmas is so connected to music. And Christmas is so connected to to songs and, and to worship. We even have that debate every year. When should we start playing Christmas music? And the correct answer, of course, is the day after Thanksgiving. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you. I knew we had a lot of godly people here. Can, can you imagine going to a Christmas Eve candlelighting service and there was no music? You can imagine on Christmas Eve gathering for a Christmas Eve service and there's no songs. You don't sing any carols. You know, that's not just cultural that we sing around Christmas times, that we connect Christmas and music, Christmas and, and songs. It's scriptural as well. And in the Christmas story in the New Testament, there's always worship, there's always praise, there's always this music, this song that just kind of burst forth in the middle of the nativity narrative. Mary's song in Luke chapter 1 is called the Magnificat. When she realizes that she's going to give birth to the Son of God, listen to her worship. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Zechariah, in Luke chapter 1 also, when he sees the promise of God being fulfilled, he he, he blesses the Lord, he worships God and says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and he has redeemed his people. Of course, the shepherds, in Luke chapter 2, Knowing that the Christ child was born, they just burst forth in this incredible song of, of worship. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace on whom his favor rests. And then Simeon, in Luke chapter 2, he's been waiting his entire life for the Messiah to come. And the Messiah finally comes, and listen to him, praise God. My eyes have seen your salvation that you, O oh God, have prepared. You are a light to the Gentiles and the glory to Israel. Because music is always connected to Christmas and songs are always connected to Christmas and Christmas is always connected to worship, we thought for the next several weeks we would do a series called Christmas in the Psalms and go back to the Old Testament song book, which is the book of Psalms, and see the story of Christ's coming. Because songs are so attached to Christmas, we're going to go back to the book of Psalms this December and discover the Christmas story there. So if you're a copy of God's Word, would you turn with me, please, to Psalm chapter 2, the second psalm. Hope you have a copy of God's Word with you today. This is where we'll be all morning long, or a device with you today that you can go to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm in the Old Testament, book of Psalms in the Old Testament. Right about in the middle of your Bible, if you're relatively new to opening up a Bible, relatively new to being at church. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, those are kind of some, some uh, books that are all there together, right in the middle of the Bible. Psalm chapter 2, well, I'll read this entire psalm, and then we'll, we'll stay in this psalm together this, this morning. Psalm chapter 2, beginning in, in verse 1, begins with a question. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, 
Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Don't close your Bible. The the, the psalm is not merely some ancient Hebrew poetry. This is more than, than the hymn book for the Jews. Uh, these, these scriptures, the, the book of Psalms is, is a God-breathed scripture. All throughout the book of Psalms, God-breathed scriptures that find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ himself. Your Bible's still open. I'm certain that it is. Look back in Psalm chapter 1. Because in Psalm chapter 1, just one psalm before, the, the psalm is about an individual. It's about a particular person, a, a certain person. Look at Psalm chapter 1, uh, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Look, look at verse 2 of chapter 1. But his delight, singular, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he, singular, meditates day and night. Verse 3, he, singular, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. So Psalm chapter 1 affirms God's authority over individuals, but Psalm chapter 2 affirms the Lord's authority over all the nations. And both of those realities are absolutely necessary if we're going to have confidence in God. Because it's difficult to trust that God controls the event of your life, the events of your life, if you do not believe that it's God who controls the unfolding of all of history. But it's easy to trust that God has our lives in his hands if we believe that he has the whole world in his hands. That's the message of Psalm chapter 2. It is assurance that no one can stand against God's king that is mentioned here in verse 6. That's his coming son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Psalm chapter 2 declares this unimpeachable kingship of Jesus in four movements. So you note takers will love today, just four movements. And in this, we will see the Christmas story. Here's the first thing that we see. We see the chaos of rebellion. Look back in in verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, it asks this question, why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? So there's this multinational, international movement happening here, and the movement is described in, in two ways. Number one, the nations are raging. The nations rage. So you have these various races, these various nationalities, and they're assembling together like an angry mob ready to riot. Then secondly, you see that the peoples plot in vain. So they have this strategy, that's the word plot right there, is the, is the Hebrew word Hagah, that, that is also used in chapter 1. We've already gone back to chapter 1, so go back to chapter 1 one more time and look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, here it is, he Hagahs, he meditates day and night. And so in Psalm chapter 1, the word Hagah in Hebrew is translated meditate, but in chapter 2, that same word is, is used to translate the word Plot, same word, Hagah. So here's the contrast. The godly, chapter one, meditate on God's law and they delight in it. But the ungodly, in chapter two, they meditate to overthrow God and they are enraged. The word vain right here, of course, means empty or or it's worthless that they're even trying to overthrow God. So the question is, in verse one, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Verse two and verse three is the answer. 
because the kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That should be a capital A in your Bible. Most translations do have it capitalized, but that's speaking of the Messiah, the Christ. And here's what they're saying. Let us burst their bonds, plural pronoun, God and his son, the Christ. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their, plural pronoun, God and his son, the Christ. Let us cast away their cords from us. So verse two tells us of this conspiracy that reaches the highest offices in the land. The kings, they set themselves together. That's a military term. They're preparing for, for war. I mean, we know this in the world today. It's difficult for world leaders to agree upon anything. But, but, but here, they have unanimously agreed to go to war. I mean, what enemy could be so threatening to them that a worldwide coalition would declare war? Here's who they're declaring war against. Verse 2, against the Lord. And against his Christ, against his Messiah, against his king, against his anointed. So this global conspiracy that we see here in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3 is a conspiracy against God. Now listen, Highland. Not the notion of God. Not the idea of God. Have you noticed in our world today that people don't have a problem with the generic God? People don't have a problem with an ambiguous God. People don't have a problem with a non-distinct God. But here, their problem is with the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible. That is the name of God. They are against Yahweh, this perfect, personal, self-sufficient, revealing God whose purpose and power are, are we're seeing represented by his, verse 2, anointed, this Old Testament word for Messiah. It's the New Testament word for Christ. So the worldwide conspiracy is against God and his Messiah, King, Jesus. History really is just one long story of man warring against God. It's often disguised today. Disobeying your parents is warring against God. You're welcome, parents, for saying that. Yeah, I thought I might get an amen from, from, from a dad or a mom out there somewhere. Disobeying your parents is really warring against God. Saying that your body is your body and you can do whatever you want to with it is warring against God. Refusing to forgive someone, that's war against God. Refusing to give, that is war against God. Refusing to care for the poor, to, to feed the hungry, that is warring against God. Racism is warring against God's creativity. And so is abortion. Choosing any sexual activity outside of the marriage of a man and a woman is warring against God. Things have not changed that much since Psalm chapter 2. Verse 3 is the rebel's mission statement. <laughs> Let us burst their bonds. Let's get away from this God. Let's get away from his anointing. Let's burst their bonds apart. And let's cast away their cords from us. These are, this is humans refusing to submit to God's authority. They're describing God's authority as bonds and cords. They view God's authority as oppression and bondage. Here's a little subpoint for the first movement. The ultimate goal of sinful people is to break away from God. That's the goal of the godless. We do not want this God giving us any authority, telling us what to do. We've been pushing for this since the very dawn of creation. And we say it in ways like this today. This is my life. I can live it like I want to. Don't tell me what to do. God, just save me. Don't boss me. But rebellion against God really is a self-inflicted wound. I mean, is a tree really free? When wind uproots it from the soil? Is a fish 
really free when the fisherman reels it out of the confines of the water? Is a train really free when it's no longer on the tracks? Are we really free when we rebel against God's authority? Here's my second subpoint to go with that. True freedom is the result of joyful obedience to God's perfect will. We have been fed a lie in this nation. And the lie that we've been fed is freedom is you can do whatever you want to do. I mean, that is freedom, but that's not spiritual freedom. And honestly, that freedom that is not spiritual freedom will actually lead you to a deeper captivity. You will never be free if you think that freedom is all about you can do whatever you want to do. Here is true biblical spiritual freedom. It's the result of us obeying God joyfully to his perfect, pleasing will. It's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle, I am lowly in in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Isn't that what we're looking for today? Rest for our souls. My yoke, Jesus said, is easy. My burden is light. P.T. Forsyth was an incredible Scottish theologian of the 19th century, and he said the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. Man, let that sink in. We're all subjects. I don't see any... 120-year-old people here today because we're all subject to death. I don't see anybody floating out of their seats right now because we're all subject to the laws of gravity. But the sad thing is often we choose to be subject to addictions and, and to feelings and to lust and to pornography and to dysfunction and to popularity and to financial success. Usually we're subject to ourselves. But true freedom can be found when we're subject to the king himself. Here's the second second movement in this second psalm, the Christmas story we see here. It's the response of God. So the the nations are raging. They're they're, they're plotting against God. And and look at verse 4 because now we see God's response to this human rebellion. And it's twofold again. It's a twofold response. Number one, God sits. He sits while this is happening. Notice the contrast between earth and heaven. Verse 1 and verse 2, the nations are raging, people are plotting, kings are setting up for war, rules, rulers are taking counsel, and what does God do in verse 4? He sits. His palms aren't sweating. He's not pacing the floor of heaven. He's not calling in his counsel for an intelligent briefing. He's not fleeing to some secure location. The Lord sits. And where is he sitting, verse 4? He's sitting in the heavens. This does not mean that God is distant or aloof or uncaring. It means that he's beyond the reach of human rebellion. And what is God doing as he sits in the heavens? I love this. Here's the second thing. He laughs like Jerry McVeigh at the one yard line yesterday. He just just laughs. I aged 15 years the last two minutes of that game yesterday. God laughs. He's amused by the attempts to impeach him. In verse 4, the word derision there, moms and dads, you might remember this phrase. The word derision there means that God is not laughing with them. He's laughing at them. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. This is unbelievably important to the Christmas story. Jesus was sent because God is a God of love. Jesus was also sent because God is a God of judgment and wrath. Because of God's love, he sent his son that we could know him. 
But because of his wrath, God sent his son that we might be saved by him. And he wanted to save us because of his love. He needed to save us because of his wrath. Because in, in this story, in Psalm chapter two, do you know where we are? We're verse three. We're trying to push God away the best that we can. We're the ones who don't want God telling us how to live our lives. And I hope we're all spiritually self-aware today in this house enough to know we needed to be saved. Verse six, the Lord says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. I've set my king on my holy hill. Notice the tension in this text. In verse two, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. God responds, verse six, by saying, oh, I have set my king on Zion. The kings of the earth are trying to stop God's king. But you can't stop God's sovereign agenda. You can't stop Christmas. God has chosen a king to come and to rule the nations and has set this king in Zion, his holy hill. This refers to a specific location on earth, but also the transcendent, transcendent place in heaven. So here's God's word to the rebels. You got here too late and you're gonna leave here too early to overthrow the government of God. For the Lord has set his king on Zion. God has already determined in his sovereign agenda, I will set my king, my son, the son of God will reign over heaven and earth. And here's Christmas, number three, the coming of the king. Verse seven is fascinating because it's Jesus speaking. Remember, Jesus did not come at Bethlehem for the first time. That's not when he was, was born Jesus has existed forever. He was not created in Bethlehem. He has always been. So here's Jesus speaking the Old Testament. And he says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. And today I have begotten you. This verse is used several times in the New Testament. Four times to be exact. Acts chapter three, Acts chapter five, Hebrews chapter one, Hebrews chapter five to affirm that the sovereignty of the lordship of Christ is used to affirm uh, the the authority of of Jesus as God's son. In fact, 60% of Psalm chapter two is re-quoted in the New Testament. This is that important of, of, of a passage that speaks of this king, this Christ that is to come. So in verse eight, if you're looking there, God now says to Jesus, ask of me. Ask me for this. I will make the nations your heritage. I will make the ends of the earth your possession. So the father gives the son right here the nations as his inheritance, the same nations that are raging against him, the same nations that are plotting to overthrow God. God says to Jesus, I will make these nations your your heritage. The father further offers his son the ends of the earth as his possession. What is this? It's a prophecy that the kingdom of Christ will cover the globe. It will start in, in Bethlehem. It will ultimately make its way to Waco, Texas, and then extend to the very ends of the earth. Verse nine, you shall break them. God speaking to the, to the son, God the father speaking to God the son. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So God tells his son, and listen Highland, God is telling us right here as well that Christmas is not just a story of a child coming to save, but a judge coming to defeat sin forever. It's why the Christmas carol admonishes us. We sang it this morning, fall on your knees because this coming king will break the rebellion and will smash the work of the enemy. Number four, in the fourth movement of Psalm chapter two, the Christmas story is the choice of our response. 
So that, that's the story. There was rebellion. God responds. God responds also by the sending of his son, the coming of the king. So now what is our choice? What is the choice of, of our response? And if you think Psalm chapter 2 sounds heavy, especially for a December sermon, see verse 10, the grace of God. Now, therefore, because all this is true, O kings, the one who are plotting to overthrow God, to overthrow Yahweh, now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. It's a call to surrender. It's a call to lay down arms. It's a call to stop warring against God. You see, wise kings make peace when they know that there's no hope of victory. And we should do the same, friends before the second Christmas comes, to have peace with God. Those who war against God are fighting a losing battle. So what should we do then as, as the people of God? Maybe you're here today saying, this, 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 is a, this is an amazing Christmas story. Now, what is my response? What do I now do? What should we do? Verse 11 tells us, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In other words, change our ways. Sisters and brothers, we're going to serve something. We're going to serve someone. We were made to be servants of something. We were made to be subject to something. And so here we see serve the Lord and rejoice. Rejoice in his presence, but let your knees shake a little bit. Rejoice with trembling. What a succinct, perfect description of true worship. We enter into his presence, there should be joy because in his presence there's a fullness of joy. But as we enter into the presence of God, we should still tremble because he's the king of heaven and earth. And then one last call to surrender. I bet you heard it when I said it earlier in verse 12. Kiss the son. It's not a kiss of affection. It's not a kiss of romance. It's a kiss of allegiance. It is a kiss of, of humble surrender. When a defeated king had to pledge his allegiance to a conquering king, he would kiss his hand or, or, or kiss his foot. See, see the urgency of the call here in verse 12 is kiss the son, surrender to this king, humbly surrender to him, give your allegiance to him, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. You see, this baby in the manger is going to grow up and he's going to confront sin. He's going to confront my sin. He's going to confront your sin. To think that Jesus is too loving to bring judgment is a short-sighted picture of Jesus. Because here, the psalmist gives us a full, robust picture. He recognized Christ as the Lord who would tolerate no rivals. And he tells all of us to submit to the son, to bow down before the son, to serve the son, to kiss the son. And Psalm chapter two ends with this statement of, of blessing. It's the tidings of comfort and joy. Here it is, the very last part of chapter 12, of chapter two, verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Heavy, 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 and then blessing. Uh, blessed are those who take refuge in God. A refuge is a hiding place. A refuge is a strong tower. A refuge is a place of security. It was the ancient panic room. You, you would go there to find safety. We all need a place of refuge. The gospel here, the good news here is that God is an unfailing refuge for all who trust in him. 
Because those who trust in him, what's the word? Are blessed. It's really the Hebrew word for they're happy. They're filled with joy. They're complete. To use a 2021 vernacular, they're okay. We're good now. We're taking refuge under the wings of God. He is our strong tower. So Psalm chapter 2 is, is crystal clear. It is God who has made his son Jesus the king, and he is king forever over heaven and over earth. There's no question at all in this passage that Jesus is the king. The question is, is he your king? Is he your king? Kiss the son. Give your life to him. Bow down and surrender. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in his presence with trembling. We're going to sing a song in a few moments. And I know these next few sentences make some of you uncomfortable, so just be uncomfortable. Some of you may need to sing this song from your knees. I mean, I know it's kind of crowded here today. Some of you are thinking, I'm right in the middle of my row. There's no way you can turn around and just sing right there in your seat. Or maybe a couple hundred of you could come and just kneel here at the front and sing this next song. You know the words. He is the king. He is the king. Is he yours? Would you stand with me and let's pray together? Father, this psalm amps us up for Christmas. Jesus, you have been set by the Father on a holy hill. As the kings were setting themselves against God, God is setting his son on a hill, on Zion, the the, the spiritual center of the universe, setting his son on Calvary, a hill outside of Jerusalem. And we can do one of two things with this king who's been set by God. We can say to him, keep your hands off of my life. Or I tremble and bow before you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. God, give us grace now to sing this song from a surrendered posture. You're the king. We want you to be our king. In that king's name we pray and we sing.